you join me in a scripture reading this morning, it comes from John chapter 4. I'll be reading from verses 4 through 30 and verse 39. John chapter 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And this is God's word. Every Christian community, on one hand, holds certain common truths that are grounded in God's word. But there are also differences in every church. And those differences can vary between foundational truths that they hold to, to functional applications of those truths, to the way that they do government. So if you're going to join a church, if you're new here this morning, it's very important that you know what values a church emphasizes 
what's primary in their community. And so we're spending an entire season here at Metro talking about our five core values at this church. And the first 10 weeks of this uh, extended series, we've been talking about the importance of the gospel, the centrality of the gospel in the life of the church, because every church says that they're gospel-centered. Every church says they're gospel-based. Every church says they're gospel-focused. What does that mean? What does that mean? Now, last week, we looked at Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus, very famous passage in John chapter 3. Nicodemus is educated. He's got high status. He's a respected, wealthy male ruler. So he's on the inside. He's in in society. But here, Jesus meets a woman who's completely outcast. And yet, she's in. And so, we're going to see four things, but it's a little bit of a cliffhanger, right, in some ways, because we're going to split these four lessons into two weeks. And I'm going to cover the first two of those things today. The gospel gives us a new agenda. The gospel gives us a new life. The gospel gives us a new center. The gospel gives us a new love. I love, uh, I've been preaching this passage for years of my life. Um, I cannot frame it better than those four points, Um, but we're going to focus on those first two things today. The gospel gives us a new agenda because the gospel gives us a new life. First, the gospel gives us a new agenda. In verse 9, this woman says, what are you talking to me for? Why are you talking to me? In verse 27, the disciples, they're actually surprised later on when they see Jesus talking with a woman. Why? Because Jesus is sitting down. He's talking with a woman. It's a posture. In ancient times, rabbis sat while they were t- teaching. But the one thing rabbis would never do, they would never teach women. And here's Jesus, a rabbi, teaching a woman. And on top of that, she's a Samaritan woman. And she's alone. Why is she alone? Water. She came to fetch water. Water is needed for everything. Water is needed for cooking, for cleaning, for, for bathing, for drinking. But water in those ancient times, it wasn't readily available. And so every morning, women would always walk together to get water that they needed for the day. But this woman, she comes alone. And rabbis, they would never teach alone. They would never be with women alone. They would never teach women. And here, she, here Jesus is sitting in a posture of teaching, talking and dialoguing with a woman. No one's with her. In fact, this woman comes at the sixth hour, which means she chose the hottest time of the day to travel. And so it's intentional. She intentionally chose a time when she would be alone, except there's Jesus. The reason why she comes alone is because she's outcast. She's outside of every circle. But look. And you've got to follow this with me here. Verse 4, Jesus passes from Judea to Samaria. He's crossing geographical, ethnic boundaries. In verses 6 to 7, he sits down and he's talking with a woman, meaning that as a rabbi, he's teaching a woman. He's crossing gender boundaries, social boundaries. In verse 7, she's a Samaritan woman. And that means that for historical reasons, uh, Samaritans, there was a lot of strife between Samaritans and Jews. They were considered half-bloods. They were viewed as impure. And so Jesus is crossing cultural boundaries. In verse 9, Jews, they didn't associate with Samaritans because of that long history of strife between those two groups. And so much that a Jew would normally take a longer route to go around Samaria to get to Galilee, if that's what they were trying to do. Intentionally, Jesus is crossing cultural, religious boundaries. And of course, verse 18, Jesus says, you've had five husbands 
And the man that you're with today is not your husband. And so Jesus is crossing moral boundaries. This woman is morally impure. He's crossing moral boundaries to reach this person to do what? Verse 4, it says, he had to go through Samaria. He had to go there. This woman is outside of every ring. This woman is outside of every circle. She's not right in an ethnic standpoint, gender standpoint, social standpoint, cultural standpoint, religious standpoint, moral standpoint. Likely she's uneducated. She's poor. She's got no rights because ancient times women had no rights in those days. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus meets with Jesus. Nicodemus is an elder. Nicodemus is an educated, high-status, wealthy male ruler, but he has to go to Jesus to seek him out. In that passage, here Jesus goes out of his way to seek out a woman. And basically what he's saying to her is, you are in. I came intentionally for you. Look at the inviting grace of Jesus. If this Samaritan woman could be invited to be with Jesus, anyone can be invited to be with Jesus. If Jesus will go out of his way for this poor, uneducated, morally low, marginalized woman who's been cast out of every circle, he will certainly go out of his way for you. Even the woman is startled. In verse 9, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you be talking with me? How can you be engaging with me? How can you? You're crossing ethnic, gender, cultural, religious boundaries. In verse 15, sir, give me this water. You're a teacher. You are a male. You're crossing gender boundaries. Verse 19, I can see that you are a prophet. In other words, you're crossing religious boundaries. To talk to me. You're crossing moral boundaries to talk to me. Verse 28. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? In other words, morality was always the reason I could never encounter God. Morality was always the main reason why God would never let me in. And yet Jesus let me in. Jesus came out for me. And he renewed me. Could he be the one? Could he be the Christ? In this narrative, Jesus intentionally took the very things that we use to separate from other people. Jesus took the very things that we use to distance ourselves from other people. Ethnic, I mean, today, we are living in one of the most segregated times in our history. Dare I say, in our history, we are living in uh, ethnic, racial boundaries. Barriers have been placed up. Social barriers, cultural barriers, religious barriers. Wars are fought. Because of religious barriers, moral barriers. And yet Jesus works through, weaves through these barriers to bring about a beautiful union. And that is the character of God. That is the beauty of Christ. 2,000 years later, this uneducated woman is teaching us. This uneducated woman is teaching us. We're still talking about this woman. Now, I know there are some very educated, intelligent, even wealthy people here at Metro, but I'm not sure how many of us would still be talking about you 2,000 years from now. What does that tell you? Jesus is saying there is no ethnic boundary, there's no racial boundary, no cultural boundary, no gender boundary, no social boundary, no, no, no religious boundary, no moral boundary that I will not cross for you, and I will do it at great cost. And when you see the boundaries that Jesus Christ crossed for us, we're able to cross those boundaries for other people. You know, right now, 
as I was kind of watching the news about Jacob Blake, we were talking about another black man treated with excessive police force. And it's so disappointing because I'm starting to see more and more Christians in the majority circles. These people are in. They have a voice. And they don't like the press that our black brothers are getting. For whatever the reason is, and there are lots of reasons that they stay. But they are digging their heels in deeper as a result. They're keeping up these barriers. Someone has been shown great injustice. Someone has been completely shown injustice in a marginalized culture. And people are mourning their pain, mourning the struggle. Because there's a systemic structure that allows for this. Because these people have historically been in the outer ring. But it's certain Christians, Christians, that are digging their heels in deeper. Why? Because they're not willing to cross any boundary. They're not willing to cross these boundaries. They're keeping those barriers up. In ancient Rome, women were marginalized. They had no rights. A woman's testimony would never even hold up in court. So if a woman lost her husband, if that woman was not remarried within a certain amount of time, she, was, she would lose her citizenship. So in those ancient times, if you were poor, if you were sick, if you were fatherless, you were out. But the church brought them in. They didn't say, well, our rights have been trampled on too. They didn't say, shut up, just deal with it. Or, well, you know, I'm a supporter of the emperor because at least he's better than the alternative. No church ever said no, no church ever said that. The church said, when you see Jesus Christ crossing his, these great boundaries for me, it empowers me to cross every boundary for other people. And so women and the poor and the orphans, the marginalized, what you call the dispossessed, the sick, they flocked to the church. The church grew. People came to the church in droves. That means that the gospel can give us a new agenda. Now, why does the gospel give us a new agenda? And I'm going to close with this second point. It's because the gospel gives us new life. In verses 4 to 7, Jesus Christ goes to Galilee. He's on his way to Galilee. He goes through Samaria. And at that time, a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. And this conversation that ensues between verses 7 and 26, it seems incredibly choppy, but it absolutely makes sense to the two of them when they're talking to each other. Because what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, I'm giving you something that's more than just forgiveness and a fresh start. A lot of Christians, a lot of people come to the church or come to uh, faith in Christ because they just want forgiveness. They just want a fresh start. But Jesus says, it's going to be more than that. It's not less than that. It's more than that. I want to give you a new life. Water means newness. Throughout the Old Testament, it means newness. It means cleansing. It means new life. Oftentimes synonymous with the Holy Spirit and his work to clean and give new life, to apply the gospel in us. In chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to be born of water and the Spirit. Now, we don't live in a climate, this desert climate like the Near East in these ancient times. And so we've likely never seen anybody suffer from extreme dehydration. But the reality is our bodies are made pretty much mostly of water. And so our body is constantly crying out for water. We're constantly crying out. We're longing for water. We're always thirsty. In fact, before you realize you're thirsty, your body's been thirsty for some time. And if you go too long without water, you start to burn up inside. There's this torment. You start out with dehydration. You might get a headache. 
You might have a dry throat. But eventually there's lots of heat and pain. And you start to feel like you are burning up. And if you go too long without water then, beyond that point, there's torment. It's like hellfire. And Jesus is saying, I have something to offer you that the soul needs even more than water. The Bible says that if God is not at the center of your heart, if God is not at the center of your soul, and you place any other thing, whether it's a relationship or relationships in general, uh, your youth, your beauty, your wealth, your material possessions, if you place any of these things as the thing that you need as your source of worth, then you're going to long for that thing. You're going to long for more of that thing. It's an addiction almost. You're going to long for it. You're going to thirst for it. And your soul is going to start to corrode until you die. Because it's like drinking of the sea. It looks like water. It looks like it can quench your thirst. That deepest longing that you have. But it actually makes you thirstier. And so you start to thirst even deeply inside. Until your body bursts into torment and hellfire. You see that? But Jesus says, if you long for him, and this is exactly what he's telling this woman, verse 10, if you long for him, if you drink of him, in you becomes a spring of life. It's a remarkable statement. What does it mean? If your hope is not in Jesus, if your hope is not in Jesus Christ, as the savior of your life, as the Lord of your life, as your king, you will place your emotional, psychological, physical well-being in something else. That's what you're going to do. That's the definition of worship. That's what we mean when we talk about worship. The disciples ask Jesus Christ, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. That is the greatest commandment. What is worship? Worship is when you have all your faculties, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and it's fixated on one thing that is of supreme worth to you. That thing will captivate your energy, will captivate your soul. You will pour your life into that thing. You will pour your body into that thing. You will pour your energy and your strength into that thing. And so if it's a job, if your job is that thing, you will focus everything you have on your career and your job. There's a burden then that's placed on your job that your job is probably not meant to hold because, because all of a sudden it's become more than just a job. It's more than just a career. Your job becomes your hope. Your job becomes your meaning. Your job becomes your identity. You see that? If you place relationships at the center of your heart, your soul, you will focus everything. You will focus all of your energy on being loved. And what happens is, because your soul is going bad, because your soul is starting to corrode, you will start to distort truth, distort reality, do things that, that your heart because it wants that thing so bad, it wants the love of other people, acceptance and approval so bad, you will start to manipulate friends, you will start to lie. Whatever it takes, you will buy your friends, you will change for them, you see? College students, this is a big reality as soon as you enter back into your school life. You will change for them, you see? Because all of a sudden, it's more than just a friend. It's about acceptance. It's about a cosmic approval, the sense of worth that you get when people like you, if you place at the center of your heart your girlfriend or your boyfriend, your spouse, your child, you will sacrifice everything for them. You will lose yourself in doing. Your soul will start to corrode, become empty. You don't even realize it because for a while you may feel satisfied. You will start to sacrifice everything else for them because it's more than just about family. It's more than just, it's about intimacy. It's about having this cosmic knowledge of being loved. 
This is how I know that I'm okay. Because somebody on the outside views me as, as somebody that they need. Somebody that is beautiful. So when you lose that job, when you lose that friend, when you lose that boyfriend or girlfriend, your life starts to fall apart. And there's this deep longing and loss and burning. It's torment. You're dying. It's like hellfire. There's this longing. There's this thirst. And it's unquenchable. And so this woman who's come this long way to fetch physical water, verse 15, wants, she wants this water. And Jesus says, well, go call your husband. Go call your husband and come back. Why? Because he wants to get to the heart of the thirst. He wants to get at the heart of the longing. He says, you've had five husbands, and the man that you're currently with is not your husband. You've had six men. Six is the number for imperfection in the Bible. Whenever you see the number six, it means that it's a restless number. It represents dissatisfaction. It represents incompletion, imperfection, loss, brokenness, sin. The woman comes at the sixth hour and has had six men. In other words, the pattern of her life that spans time and space and relationships is about getting love apart from God and running from people to get that love. Running from God to get that love. And she's tired and she's restless and she's hurting and she's longing. Today, we have people everywhere around the world. They're longing for hope. Because they're isolated. They're longing for justice. They're longing for fulfillment and acceptance and beauty and intimacy. And Jesus says, I can give you a lasting hope. Stop looking elsewhere. I can give you a lasting hope. Everything else will make you thirsty. I can give you a living justice. I can give you an eternal fulfillment. I can give you an unwavering acceptance and an unfading beauty and an undying intimacy and love. So when you pour your life into Jesus, he says, a spring will well up in you and it will overflow. Because relationships, because you're so fulfilled, because you're no longer empty. Relationships stop being about what you get, but about what you give. And so like a spring... Like a river, you can't stop a river. You can't, like a fountain, it is unstoppable. How did this woman get to this place? This woman's alone. Today, we hate being alone. Being alone is like a curse. But if this woman was not alone, all the stuff that she went through, if it didn't get her alone, she never would have encountered Jesus. Today, a lot of us are isolated. A lot of us are separated. And on top of that, we're putting up barriers and separating ourselves from even more people. And so we are more isolated, more fragmented as a society. And personally, individually, we are more isolated than we've ever been before. Take this unique opportunity to be near Jesus. Connect with Jesus. I don't know what the Lord is bringing to your life. I don't know what the Lord is trying to say to you in your life in this moment. But we're all in it. And there's a reason and a purpose. And I can't fathom what that purpose may be. But I do know that Jesus wants to connect. There's a desire to connect. He's offering you a life, a new life, in the midst of that isolation and separation and brokenness. In the midst of all the societal pressures right now and tensions. In the clearing of all that, 
we see Jesus Christ going out of his way to connect with you. What is it saying to you about the things that you really worship? Now, this woman, because of the things that she worshipped, she really messed up. And so she's completely marginalized and isolated. It's because of her sinfulness. It's because of her moral sinfulness. She's broken God's law in many directions. It's because of her sin, her deep-rooted, indwelling sin. What is this saying to you about what you worship? Because Jesus is saying, I will use even your screw-ups. I will use even your sin. Nothing can stop me from creating a fountain of joy in your life if you take of me. Because while she's alone, Jesus becomes very personal to her. This conversation, we're going to go much more into this conversation next week. This conversation leads to the woman saying, this living water, I want that, I need that. And so what do you see? The epilogue in verse 28 to 29, this woman runs back to the town, to the very people who cast her out, to the very people who isolated her, to the very people that she herself avoided. Why? Because she's got new life. Her life has completely been changed. Why? Because her thirst has been quenched. The search is over. The shame is gone. The guilt has been cast out. The text says in verse 28, she left her water jar. The very reason why she went there alone in the first place, suffering the heat, the very thing that's causing the sag in her shoulders and the fatigue, it's gone. Why? Because she's experienced a new source of worth in her life, a new life. She doesn't even get the water. Because she's found the living water, the ultimate source. It's new. How do we get it? How do we get it? Look at Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has been betrayed by his friends, rejected by the religious, rejected by the rulers. And so he's suffering on the cross. And he's dying on the cross. The most perfect person that ever walked the earth, who is now cast out of every ring. And especially on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying, I've been cast out of your ring. I've been cast out of intimacy with you. Now I'm outside of the most important circle, my source of worth. That which gave me life has cast me out and I'm separated from him. And so I'm dying. It is like hellfire. There's torment, the love of the Father, the love of God, which captivated my heart, which captivated my soul, has now been gone from, is now gone from me, and I'm alone, and I'm isolated, and I've been forsaken, forsaken, and now I'm experiencing the curse of God, because the wrath of God in that moment was pouring out on Jesus as a penalty for our sins. And so Jesus is groaning, and his shoulders are sagging, and he's dying. And he says, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. The one who is the living water, the one who is the eternal fountain, says, I thirst. So that we who are longing, we who are longing for intimacy with God can not only be in, but we will thirst no more. And when he said, I thirst, it wasn't, he wasn't talking about a physical thirst. His soul is longing for God and he has lost God. And so he's burning up like he's in hellfire. Why? Jesus Christ was rejected so that we could be accepted. His soul is longing for God so that we 
could have intimacy with God. Jesus Christ was disowned by God so that we could be adopted by God. Jesus Christ is isolated and alone so that we will never be alone. If you screwed up, if you're coming from a broken place, if you're experiencing an unquenchable guilt, if you're, if you're experiencing an unquenchable shame, if you feel today that you've been cast out of some rings in your life because you messed up, look at the gospel as good news. The gospel is good news. Why? Because you can be poor and uneducated, lower class, used up, outcast in your life, screwed up, and yet... The cross shows, that this, shows us that there is no boundary that Jesus Christ would not be willing to cross for you. There's no boundary. There's no danger or suffering that he's not willing to endure for you. That's what the cross shows us, to bring you in and to shape you, to give you new life. If you trust in that, you have new life. You can abandon all those other things that you sought for to get new life. You may feel like for a time, if I look at things, look to things apart from God, there's a newness there, but it'll get old. And either when it's over or it won't dissatisfy you, you will be in this place of longing and a deeper thirst. But when you place your trust in Jesus Christ as your savior and your king, there's new life. It's also good news because when you look to the cross, there is your validation. There is your acceptance. There is the beauty. There is the love that you've been looking for all your life. It's all embodied and encompassed in Jesus. Apart from him, you're going to thirst. But joined to him, in union with him, there will be a spring of water welling up to eternal life. New life. It gives you a new agenda. The power to cross boundaries for other people. Let's pray together.